1: Two. One. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. And as I always do at a bonus time, I always look at the date. And I have to take a newspaper because I always forget the date. Friday, August 30th, is the date. But, of course... You'll be listening to this anytime, because it's a bonus interview on a podcast, right, D? It could be like Christmas 2025. Yep, anytime. (laughs) It could be the next century, you know, anytime. Merry Christmas! (laughs) Happy New Year's. Uh, Anyways, (laughs) uh, mystery bonus guest, introduce yourself.
0: Uh, my name is Jim Coogan. I've uh, been here a couple times before, here to talk about, I think, legal issues today.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, being very modest, he's our regular uh, legal analyst. We, any kind of legal issue, hey, get Coogan in the studio. Uh, generally, we have you talking. To, by the way, what law firm are you from? Might as well promote your law firm. It's
0: a good idea. The name is Dwyer and Coogan. Uh, and if you're looking for us, the easiest way is just DwyerCoogan.com.
1: There you go, Dwyer, D-W-Y-E-R, doing it off the memory. All right, yep. uh, Jim Coogan, and uh, we spent a lot of time with Jim going through Donald Trump's legal problems. That's a favorite theme, breaking down what uh, the uh, all the various investigations, legal, congressional, and the Donald Trump's malfeasance. Uh, there must be three or four different uh, uh, ongoing investigations to Donald Trump, so we'll probably get into some Trump talk, but I have four things I want to talk to you about today, Jim, on our agenda. Number one is jason epstein number two uh, is the johnson and johnson lawsuits interesting uh legal innovations uh in those cases going after johnson and johnson the opioid crisis uh trump and deutsche bank get the latest on that and then I got like a little uh, curveball that was uh, thrown my way by Delmarie Cobb, uh, police malpractice insurance. So we're going to get to all four of those in the interview today. Let's start with Jason Epstein. J- oh, Jason Epstein, excuse me, Jeffrey Epstein. I don't know why I said J- uh, Jason. Jeffrey Epstein, uh, the sleazy hedge fund operator uh, who uh, was trafficking young women, a predator, a sexual predator, uh, and of course committed suicide in prison. And now it turns out that because of his will that he signed a couple days before his suicide, it's going to be that much harder uh, for people to successfully sue his estate. So, why don't you just break it down for us what all this uh, means and wh- whether it is legal? For a guy like Jeffrey Epstein to make it difficult for people to get at the money they rightfully, in my humble opinion, should get for his misdeeds. Talk about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, what an onion to try to, to peel away from this guy. And I think one of the interesting things about the fact that he is gone, and so therefore the criminal investigation that would have been, uh, was ongoing at that point. He'd finally been arrested. He'd finally been charged with something after all these years, other than that, than that Travesty of justice in Florida, where they let him off. Basically, um, there's so much about him that is mysterious. Who his clients were, how he developed the size of the f- hedge funds that he was running in the first place. Um, wh- you know who he was managing money for, the connections that he therefore had to some of the most powerful people on the planet: uh, President Trump, former President Clinton. Some of the he- those are the headliners. It's all you really need, and dozens of other big names in finance in in politics that that why would they be associated with him other than perhaps being involved in uh, the sex trafficking and, and underage sex scandal that this guy's whole life was revolving mm-hmm. around? Um, so who knows if a lot of those de- details will ever actually be further investigated or, or how much of it's just gonna die with him? Um, but at this point, the most the, the, the thing that you're asking about today is yet another twist in um, the ways that wealthy people can use the legal system to their advantage, um, even after they're gone from this earth, after they've uh, shuffled off that mortal coil, so to speak. So that was something that came out right after all of the, uh, I guess, shocking headlines about the fact that he was dead in the first place and then the question of was it really a suicide and how could this happen while he's under suicide watch or should have been. Um, The fact that he'd had a meeting just days before with some of his attorneys. And what you're talking about here is, so when someone has the the most basic estate planning, you can just have a will. You could have a simple one-person will. You don't have a wife. It's just you. And you could say, I leave all my possessions to whomever you want. And you name somebody to actually oversee that process, the executor. And whatever state you're in, there's some formal processes, but that's it. You make a will. But it can obviously get much more complicated than that. And when you've got an estate that's purported to be valued at more than a half a billion dollars, you know, you can afford to have lawyers do complicated things. Um, But one uh, thing that most people don't ever bother to get into unless they do have a lot of of assets is a will can be associated with a trust. You can kind of have a two-step process here.
1: Now what is it, tell, tell people what a trust is.
0: So a trust is like the secret part of a will. Because wills get filed with the probate court of whatever county that you were in when you died, or where you resided. Okay. Okay. So that that's a public document, and whatever it says in there about your assets and where they are and who they're going to, you, it, it would be accessible because it's not. They're never under seal. There's never any. You know, they're not to protect anyone. The person's dead at that point. Um, but a trust is a private document where you are you're the settlor. We're going to get a little technical with legal terms, but it nobody needs to take notes necessarily. If you really have questions, call an estates planning attorney, right? Um, a settlor is is in this case it's Epstein. You've got assets and you're trying to do something with them more than just having a simple will where you're designating who gets the stuff. When you make this trust, you are effectively giving the legal title over to the trust. So in your land, your bank accounts, your your, saving, your um, investment accounts, any other complicated financial instruments that you might have an ownership over, now a trustee actually has an oversight over these things. And you can associate these two things, the will and the trust, by having the will just say, follow whatever my trust says. And the other thing that happens there is now that you have taken this this stuff all these all this valuable uh, thi- all these things that can be turned into money to pay creditors which would include someone who sues you for sexual assault your estate the dead guy's estate Jeffrey Epstein's estate <clears throat> no longer has these things now they're in the trust so good luck to g- going to get them now that is not necessarily the last word on what happens here just because he created this trust and put- s- Purportedly, these are all just media reports at this point, most of his stuff into that trust, which is, again, it's, it's overseen by a trustee and it can have all kinds of instructions as to what to do with those things, but it's removed from your estate's legal liability. So if he owed, whatever, hundreds of thousands of dollars in credit cards or in mortgages, or if somebody sues him and proves their case and it was some horrible sexual assault of a minor, you know, a jury might give that person 5 million bucks, 10 million bucks. If they knew that it's Jeffrey Epstein, they might give him more because they know he's got it. Um, it brings in a concept that we were actually talking about not too long ago, which is whether that transfer was a sham transfer in the first place. So one of the things that these these women will probably be going after, uh, their lawyers, if the ones who are going to make civil claims against his estate, uh, they can try to sue and say that this was a fraudulent transfer of that, of those finances, of those assets in the first place. Um, so, you, so you're right in the way you asked the question, that it's harder. Mm-hmm. They are going to have to pr- pursue a different angle to this, but it can be done. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's automatically protected from those creditors.
1: All right. Now, before we get to the fraudulent transfer counter law, so let me ask you this almost like existential question and it it kind of gets to the heart of did he commit suicide or not all right if a trust is intended to as you say to effectively or is one if one of the benefits of a trust is as you said to effectively shield one's income from people who are suing you why would jeffrey epstein care about that if he's dead if he's dead he doesn't got to be, he won't be the beneficiary of his $500 million. Let it, who, are, who does he care who gets his $500 million once he's gone? He's dead. And yet, several days before he died, uh, a, his will was amended to create this trust, which as you just pointed out, effectively shields his income from people who come after him. Mm-hmm. So that gets me to that question I'll repeat. Why would he set up a trust to shield his income from people who sue him if he's going to be dead and he doesn't have to worry about who sues him and who gets his income? Uh, th-
0: this would be getting into the mind of, uh, of a horrible deceased <laughs> pedophile, but I, spite could be one reason, you know, if he has some, if he had some abiding sense that nothing he ever did was wrong in the first place. And therefore, by extension, did not believe that anybody who was a victim of his violence should benefit from the money that he had. Then this would be a way to make it harder for them to access that stuff. I mean, on that count, you you wonder. Well, maybe that maybe he thought that was true, but that that's may not. It may prove to be bad legal advice if they can ultimately access it anyway. Um, the timing of it may even be a reason to support the, the notion that this is a a fraudulent transfer explicitly for the purposes of avoiding and evading creditors um but you know there's there's more than a few people who are on the other side of that question which is uh, what actually happened here i mean there's still i know that there's a coroner's report i know there's a med- you know there was a medical examination done and some of those details are, are public and they've tried to release that information but None of it makes sense. The guy's in federal custody. He's already had an incident six weeks earlier, or something like yeah, that, something where he like came that. out with injuries that appeared to be self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. or, you know, their job, the the people whose custody he's in is to find out mm-hmm. were they self-inflicted? Are there witnesses to this? What instrumentalities did he have around him that he could have injured himself with? <clears throat> Was there any video of it? Were there guards in the area that could have witnessed what happened? get to the bottom of it. And if it's a, if it is a a suicide attempt, then why wasn't he on suicide watch? Why didn't they have all the other things that are at their disposal? And no matter what you say or what somebody might try to claim about the resources available to his jailers, which here it's the department of justice. uh, I'd, it would be difficult to argue that there's a more high profile prisoner in all of DOJ custody other than maybe El Chapo, who's now in the Bureau of Prisons part of it. I yeah. mean, honestly, you're telling me you couldn't have made sure that that particular guy had someone watching him? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I understand exactly what you're getting at, because one of the uh, strands of the investigation by the New York Times uh, subsequent to uh, Epstein's suicide is the uh, understaffing uh, uh, in these uh, prisons. Uh, since Trump, and Trump's going after a lot of federal unions, and he's going after the union of guards, prison guards, and there's fewer prison guards, and there's articles in the New York Times and other publications about how, like, you know, teachers in the prison, in the system, are now guarding. I mean, it's just there's just a shortage of employees. But your point is very well taken. There's shortages that would affect just your run of the mill prisoner that nobody ever heard of, and then there's shortages that would affect the most high profile uh, pr- prisoner. In in your system and it is suspicious that <laughs> there were not enough guards t- to watch him and guards are asleep etc and so forth i could buy your your first response uh that is truly one of spite because this is a twisted sick individual and he may just want to take it be sick and twisted and nasty and mean and low life beyond the grave right. I, I could buy that right. um and I don't want to lose myself in conspiracy land because it's an easy, uh, you know, rabbit hole to fall in and never escape from, Jim. But uh, I, it just just makes me wonder. Uh, you know, he really must be a spiteful man to set up a trust just to make things difficult, knowing that he's going to be committing suicide as soon as he can. But um, all right, now let's get to the issue of. Uh, proving uh, 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 that it's the transfer is fraudulent as you put it in other words the creation of a trust was fraudulently created Uh, how does a lawyer go about doing that so
0: there's something called the uniform Voidable transitions act which was previously referred to as the uniform fraudulent transfers act they change the name they change some of the provisions uh, of how it works it's it's basically part of creditor debtor law debt collections it's 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 in that universe of what do we do when somebody owes money doesn't have enough of it or it's somehow shielded Uh, one of the things that that lawyers can do is try to go beyond a legal fiction that was created a legal structure that was created in order to re-characterize assets like he was doing here by putting them in this trust um essentially they would have to make they would file a lawsuit and they would name the elements of what you have to satisfy under the UVTA and among them would include things like showing that there wasn't some other legitimate purpose here demonstrating that there are creditors that were known to this debtor to the person who's creating this thing um proving that he would have had some reason to expect that there would be people coming after this money for some reason And that transferring it out of his own personal assets had no other purpose than to make sure that the creditors couldn't access it. Um, Because a couple of weeks ago, or the last time I I was on the show, or two times ago, we were talking about how the state of Arizona was using this same law to go after the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceutical. The notion that in that case, a, a, a closely held corporation, so there's no publicly traded shareholders, but the individual family members and friends who own that thing were paying themselves a lot of money in the state of Arizona and other plaintiffs would, were worried that they're just going to take all the money out of the till so that by the time different states can sue them for their liability for misleading you know, pharmaceutical marketing and creating an, a massive addiction problem in this country for their own personal profits. That there wouldn't be any money left to pay off those cases. So, um, basically, w- without going through the elements of the law, that's what you're doing. You'd have to, you'd go and sue the trust. They can also, and I guess this is something I, I I don't practice in this area, so I'm not. I haven't filed one of these cases before. I don't do debt collections, but someone could theoretically sue both, sue the estate, alleging the the sexual violence, the assault. Uh, whatever other causes of action they want to put in there, a civil case. So this is different than the criminal prosecution right. of Jeffrey Epstein and also sue the trust under the UVTA and try to prove both of them potentially even in the same case. Cause ultimately if you get that judgment um, I guess, depending on the procedures of wherever you're filing those cases, my understanding is you actually may not be precluded from doing both at the same time because lots of the facts are going to be the same facts the, the existence of these underlying claims would be one of the claimed motivations for him trying to, quote unquote, hide the assets in the first
1: place. All right. Now, I, I can understand who would be the plaintiff in a case like this, a fraudulent transfer case, obviously uh, a, a victim. Would want to uh, destroy this trust, uh, so uh, in this case she uh, could get some kind of compensation for the injuries that she suffered as a from from Epstein. Who would be fighting that plaintiff? Who would be? Epstein's dead. Mm-hmm. He's got no uh, heirs. As far as I know, he's, he's he left it to a brother. That's,
0: that's the other thing. Yeah. So
1: no, 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 uh spouse, no children, no spouse, no children. So right. who, who would be fighting the plaintiffs in this for, who would be like the hiring the lawyer to battle, to preserve the trust.
0: So here it would be the trustee of the trust. They are like the legal person who's in charge of what's happening there. They're the legal identity in whom the whole thing exists. And then they'd also sue the executor of the estate and the, they might be the same person. It depends on what the document's name.
1: Uh, so but that person is not a beneficiary of the trust. Nope. So and it, when you create a trust and you put let's say you put $500 million in a trust, that's just $500 million sitting somewhere. Nobody is going to be able to spend it or?
0: Well, it'll have the instructions in the trust as to how to distribute ah, those assets. I guess whenever, you. you know, they can get around to it once the will goes into probate, once the probate court enters an order saying yes, you're allowed to do this now. Um, so, and for example, I think in one of the articles I read about this, it said that it named a couple of people and it included a stipend in there for like $250,000 to, you know, as like compensation, because there's going to be a lot of transactional work that it takes. I think there were a
1: couple of his lawyers. So in other words, money is provided for in the trust, uh, to pay lawyers to defend the trust.
0: Yeah. Same thing. And you could like, you could do that for an executor, you know, people can leave, $5,000 Five thousand bucks for the executor of their estate and their will because they're going to have to go hire a real estate agent to sell their house and all kinds of other and it, transactional
1: it, it, stuff. Just tell people out, an executor in this matter is who? What?
0: So the executor would be whoever you name in the will as the person who has the power to administer whatever's in the will.
1: Gotcha. It's not the person who gets the money from the will. The person it's the person who is uh, making sure that the stipulations in the will are followed.
0: It can be both. That is going to be dependent on individual states' case laws. You know, there may be states where they prohibit an executor from also taking under the will. You know, sometimes for the somebody who's trying to div- divvy up a lot of different assets might want to make the executor a lawyer or an individual person, their accountant or something. So it's separate from their family members who might be fighting over the money. Uh, but, you know, that's that's a. So now you got me doing wills and estates. I know, it's unbelievable, man. You're a probate guy. lawyer. I'm just a simple trial lawyer, man. <laughs> I'm a simple trial lawyer. Uh, Ask me about evidence and procedure, and I'll, I'll give you some
1: you folks straight just, from the gut. Jim Coogan gets these homework assignments from where I send them articles and I can grill them <laughs> <laughs> these uh, intricacies of probate law. All right. So you're
0: going to be a character reference when I try to be a professor yeah. <laughs> someday.
1: <laughs> yeah, Explain that I can, I can I just teach can, just I, about I, anything, apparently. Anything. Uh, you can answer any question. My question basically, if I, if I ever, uh, I should name your, 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 uh, uh, your appearance on the show. Is this legal? Because I've always baffled <laughs> by that something could possibly be legal. So effectively what you're telling me, it is legal. You, you hide everything under a trust so we don't even know like who is going to get the money that's concealed by the trust it would be it would be now when let's say uh jeffrey epstein uh he's not even alive anymore his trust prevails and let's say that some judge somewhere decides to rule on behalf of the trust as opposed to uh, a victim of horrible sexual crime so It's a good thing federal judges are appointed, not elected, because if it's a Cook County judge, surely there would be uh, retribution at the polls. But anyway, let's say you find a judge willing to side with the trust. Does it ever get publicized? Does it ever, like, who gets what in Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, from Jeffrey Epstein's estate, ever get publicized?
0: Well... So anything could get publicized. Someone could leak the information or somebody could admit to the information. But the key here, as far as the legal, the probate court process goes, none of those documents have to be filed with the court. Or if the trust document is shown to the judge, it's in camera. That's the Latin phrase for the judge reading it privately refers to them reading it in chambers. But, uh, and maybe filed under seal. You know, it depends on what exactly what the court process is for the clerk of that court. But the point is, you do not need to publicly file it the way you 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 legally are obligated to with a will.
1: I see. Uh, so it, we don't know if it'll ever be published, uh, publicized, as I put it. Maybe it's the wrong uh, word. Uh, and do you have any sense of how long it'll take before the the first. Leg of this journey is crossed. In other words, before the uh, some judge says whether uh, the the trust is fraudulent or not, do you? How long will that take?
0: I for? think it's going to be a while, because um, short of like some kind of insistence on a declaratory ruling or a motion or motions to dismiss or something, uh, unless uh, you know, I, I don't know how much probate law can involve. Um, equitable law meaning like an injunction that's filed because you know you i think actually that was one of the things that happened in that state of arizona case they were filing they were asking like the united states supreme court for an injunction to stop the sackler family from taking money Mm -hmm. so maybe that's an option because you would want to stop the trustee from dispersing those assets before such time as once you get rid of them it's going to be even harder to claw them back if that's even possible at that point so that would be the only way it would happen any quicker because injunctive relief is equitable relief is like it's like the, sh- the court process short circuited. It's it's much quicker. That's why somebody can run into court for a temporary injunction tomorrow morning. Well, tomorrow, Saturday, but Tuesday morning yeah. when the courts are open again <laughs> yeah. and possibly have a ruling that day or by the end of the week. Whereas the regular civil process with a lawsuit could take five years, yeah. two, two to five years.
1: Well, this will be around for us to talk about and, we'll, and you'll be really boning up on your probate skills <laughs> over the next year or so, because I'm not going anywhere with this story. I, you're absolutely correct. It's, um, right now, if I had a guess on a motive, it would be spite. That's where I'm sitting right now uh, with it. Uh, it. But on the other hand, if I, the conspiracy theorists are correct, Uh, and uh, he uh, was murdered, then this is evidence to that because uh, why would a person who had no intention of killing himself uh, set up, you know, no, I I can understand why a person would set up a trust if he had intended to live and Mm -hmm. he wanted to protect himself from these lawsuits and thought that he might actually get off. Well,
0: I mean, he did before. So that wouldn't be crazy, right? He might be arrogant enough to think that it'll happen again. I
1: mean, that he could get off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's put Jeffrey Epstein to the side and move on to number two, uh, Johnson & Johnson and the lawsuit uh, regarding opioids that was settled. In which state was that? That was, I'm blanking on the state. Oklahoma. Oklahoma, wow, Oklahoma. Yeah. Who would have thought some progressive le- uh, uh, lawsuit we filed in Oklahoma, talk about it.
0: Well, you know, that's it's interesting that you call it a progressive lawsuit. It is certainly going after a large corporation for money.
1: That's but this
0: This yeah. may be one of those places where it's it uh, erases partisan lines in the way that we have come to understand them in the United States in the last 15, 20, 25 years, because, I mean, actually this particular addiction issue and drug abuse issue blurs a lot of those normal lines. Um, I mean, I've certainly read commentators who point out that this is a very different approach by, by States, counties, cities to the addiction to opioids than crack addiction in the 1980s in black communities uh not the same reaction there the reaction was to police the individual people and the dealers i mean obviously this is a i'm using air quotes i'm on a podcast about a legal drug yeah. so there is a difference in who you're going after but um i think that there that <laughs> there are some real questions about this is being perceived as kind of a, a disease afflicting white communities, mm-hmm. some of them very poor, so the same socioeconomic circumstances as blighted areas in an inner city. But um, you've now had a rally of, I don't know, a hundred, maybe more municipalities around the country, several states, attorneys general have filed different lawsuits, counties have filed lawsuits. And, and their, their basic premise is, the way that Purdue and Johnson and Johnson, and um, I'm trying, I'm blanking on the name of one of the uh, the distributor companies that does the, they're like the intermediary mm-hmm. between the pro- producers of the drugs and the the places that actually distribute them, the pharmacies. Um, they all of these uh, governmental entities are trying to recoup all the public health costs that this has cost them. Uh, you know, hospital costs, ambulance costs, all the, the need to have suboxone uh, to be able to, to administer to someone who's having a heroin overdose in all of their police cars and in all of their ambulances everywhere. Um, all the training that's been involved in dealing with with opioid overdoses and all of the ancillary things that that public health systems try to do to try to help people break the cycle of addiction. This is cost. Billions around the country. So f- finally, somebody woke up about two, three years ago and started to realize that they could do this as a government and just go ahead and sue the companies individually. So um, in this case, you've got the attorney general of admittedly a very conservative state in Oklahoma who's taking Johnson & Johnson to task. And uh, so the the novel legal theory here, which is one of the reasons why... So there's a 572 million dollar judgment, but that will be appealed. I mean, believe it or not, Johnson and Johnson has no problem paying lawyers (laughs) to appeal that. Um, Yeah. But in in part because you know one of the things that lawyers understand is when it's an issue of law that you're trying to appeal, as opposed to like the facts of the case. It's a, you have a much greater chance of possibly getting something overturned because your argument is going to be that judge misapplied the law here. Mm-hmm. And one of the phrases that appellate lawyers use is what they, it's de novo. It's another Latin phrase. So in, most of the time, and this isn't 100% true, but most of the time when an appellate court is looking at an underlying court's decision, mm-hmm. if it's about the facts, they ha- they end up giving the, the finder of fact, whether it's a jury or a judge, a lot of deference. Because they're in the room. They saw the witness testify. They saw the documents up on a screen. They heard the people crying or screaming or lying, Mm -hmm. impeaching themselves on the stand. Um, Whereas when it's a question of law, courts generally review it de novo, meaning they look at it with with a blank slate. It doesn't really matter what the judge in the trial court decided as far as the appellate judges are concerned. They don't have to give him much, if any, deference, really. That's the whole point. So the fact that they would be appealing whether or not this public nuisance law was properly applied in this case, I'm sure is a reason why the board at Johnson & Johnson is thinking, eh, we we might have a shot here. Not to mention, I think the stock price went up like 3% that day because it was only five hundred. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, uh, there are those who argue, and I, many, many of whom are my friends, uh, that a $572 million judgment is just the cost of doing business for a company as large as Johnson & Johnson. And that the only way that you're really going uh, to uh, acc- accurately punish somebody is to put somebody in jail.
0: Well, there, yeah, there's two things I would say about that. One is, number you could certainly also say it should just be a lot more money because that is the language of corporations. And the, the, the AG here, their calculation was like $12.6 billion. So this was peanuts compared to what they were asking yeah. for. Now, the broader question of criminal liability for this kind of thing, it's like you, know, you, you hearken back to the early halcyon days of the Obama administration and the, the open question of whether... Criminal liability should have attached for some of the bank executives and some of the finance company executives who were responsible for all of the various financial collapses from 2006 and on. Um, there is always a, a real hesitance, you know, to try to pierce that that corporate entity and go behind that and take one of these. Fancy, You know, they're 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 doctors, yeah. they're MBAs they you know, the, in what way did they commit some kind of a, a violent act here? But I'm not disagreeing with you. I I'm just know. saying there's there, there tends not to be the political will for that kind well, of let's let's just
1: go back to where you began. Uh, you began by contrasting uh, the way in which uh, people involved in the crack epidemic of the 80s dealt with in the criminal justice system with the criminal cases filed against them to these, these rather rather innovative ways uh to f- punish these large companies that were producing these drugs that caused so much destruction mm-hmm. so this is just another element of that contrast where i don't know a prosecutor in the country who said well it's too tough to prove a case against this drug dealer
0: uh, fraud <laughs> is a crime fraud i mean it is and and everything that I've I, I'm I'm no physician or pharmacist, but everything I understand about the way these drugs were marketed versus how they actually behave sp- speaks of fraud. And you know, and there are people. There's some people in jail. They, sixty minutes had uh, a, a Florida doctor on. I think Sunday. It was yeah. this last week's show, who's in jail right now for running a pill mill, as they use the term. Yeah. Uh, where he's making thousands of dollars a day giving people a hundred pills a week or something like that. I mean, the numbers are obscene. Yeah. Uh, so he, you know, he, he wasn't on the fraudulent marketing part of it. He was on the running of a, a sham pharmacy mm-hmm. slash, um, pain management, yeah. <laughs> pain management, uh, clinic, which was, you know, the, the only pain he was trying to deal with was, <laughs> was, uh, of people who were, an inch from death just having another fix after a while. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like nobody's getting prosecuted and I'm sure maybe at this point, there may be a little bit more fear at some of these companies. McKesson, that was the distributor. I Mm -hmm. forgot about the middle, one of the middlemen who's Mm -hmm. been, who's made, and that's a a name. Nobody knows. Everybody knows Johnson and Johnson because they make baby powder and all kinds of other consumer products. But, um, and Purdue has mostly, become public knowledge because they were the ones who actually first came up with Oxycontin. Yeah. So, um, but McKesson's a, a quiet demon in this whole maelstrom. Yeah. So,
1: By the way, when you said it was very intriguing, I, I wrote notes uh, that this is a different tactic employed by law enforcement uh, in states than they did in, uh, with the crack epidemic in the eighties. And how is it possible? I'm trying to think this through. If you use this approach, to crack could it could this same legal approach happen in other words are there people you could have sued uh, like a public nuisance lawsuit who would you have sued if you were going about it this way uh, back in the 1980s
0: well what if you what if they had decided that the kingpins of what I think were much more organized drug dis- distribution networks at the time uh, especially in cities like Chicago where all you know gangs that are involved in drug trade have mostly been like flattened out and they're smaller and they're more fragmented than they used to be i mean those organizations were pretty sophisticated Mm -hmm. from some of the profiles i've read in the past i mean why can't you sue them in civil court they have money i mean maybe you have to go try to seize like cash out of a out of a mattress or something like that but there was money going through those those i mean look there's never you don't have an operation selling illicit drugs unless you're making a lot of money because yeah. it's dangerous you could get killed you can go to jail there money is the motivation so there was money there instead it was treated as like a war zone um, you know, police activity in a in a foreign country, basically.
1: Yeah, that's you a know. very good point. By the way, occupy,
0: that, jail everybody, prosecute everyone.
1: That's where our two themes, our first two themes of the day, would would uh, dovetail. Because uh, what the drug lords then would do would be to effectively do what uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein did. And create trust that would conceal. Sure. <laughs> they would have their lawyers. Are there's no money? This I guy's mean, broke and hide it overseas. But I mean, like yeah. you know,
0: banking was all on paper back then. There had to be a way to trace this yeah. stuff. I mean, I, I think in the computer age now, it probably is harder because the the internet is so terrifyingly large.
1: And so, uh, if we were doing the 1980s version of law enforcement with, let's say, Johnson and Johnson. Uh, Pol- armed police officers would burst into Johnson and Johnson's headquarters and take away in handcuffs all the pretty much everybody, mm-hmm. and, and they would try to squeeze like the secretary to testify against the uh, the higher up and so forth and so on.
0: Absolutely. Well, except for the guy making the baby powder, they probably wouldn't the understand. <laughs> <team>. But <laughs> yeah. but everybody else, yeah, I mean, yeah, that yeah. that would be the, they would treat it as a complete police, uh, like a violence enforcement yeah. action. Where you know that, I mean that's the thing though. Corporate boards don't do their violence with at the end of a gun; they do it by sowing addiction and then reaping the profits from
1: it. Now this would be uh, the kind of lawsuit you would take on, right? I and mean, we joked about you not being a probate lawyer, but this would be the kind of lawsuit you would take on, correct?
0: So in the context of being a... if So for example, if I was working in conjunction with a government who was doing this, they'll sometimes hire private civil plaintiffs-type lawyers to prosecute those cases. Yeah. Um, but you can also do them on behalf of individuals if you can characterize the case properly, uh, which... I'm not sure exactly how you would do that, but I I, I think the the other model was the tobacco model yeah. where they were using civil attorneys who were used to suing for negligence or other types of um, money damages or. or negligence, strict products, liability, those kind of things for money damages because they had an understanding of how to go after a corporation, figure out what the corporate structures are, investigate who is responsible for what, who makes the policies and procedures going up the chain, uh, sending out the kind of discovery requests that allow you to try to see behind all the shrouding of how that company works. And then ultimately finding the documents and the testimony from people to admit to where did this actually happen? Did they actually do it this way? What did they know about the the addictive properties of the drugs, and then continue to lie about?
1: Wow, yeah that uh, that 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 would be a long haul to put it mildly. Is I've not seen it. uh, Is Johnson Johnson appealing? Have they officially appealed?
0: I think they have. have? If if it's in, it might even be in this article that I was looking at today.
1: All right. So ultimately, uh, all of these lawsuits could. come down to a ruling as to whether the law has been adequately or, or, or legally applied, correct?
0: For this one, yeah. and, and this this is, I'll even read it. So Oklahoma's public nuisance law says it's a nuisance is unlawfully doing an act or omitting to perform a duty that injures or endangers the comfort, health, or safety of others. So it's, it seems really broad, mm-hmm. and that's probably the reason why, generally speaking, it would be, you know, somebody having like a I don't know, like a dangerous thing on their property and someone gets hurt in the neighborhood and they can't get the guy to stop and he's not violating zoning laws. And so they finally the city just sues him and says, look, you got a tire fire in your backyard. It's a public nuisance. The neighbors are all inhaling this smoke and a a kid got hurt from some of the embers the other day. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would be the novel approach in this case. It's not every... Uh, county city state lawsuit is framed as a public nuisance case so this one was unique in that way some some states also have this and they're doing it in a similar way than the, the, the oklahoma ag did here
1: all right uh, let's move on to the next item on our is it, is it legal uh <laughs> our new show with jim coogan and that has to do with uh donald trump and deutsche bank and we talked earlier in the sh- uh in the week uh with monroe anderson who's our trump expert uh, uh about this one and i i suppose the matter that interests me the most is, has to do with Donald Trump's income tax returns and whether somehow or other uh, Deutsche Bank could be co- co- convinced, is that the word I want to say? Coerced, whatever the word is, into revealing those uh income tax returns because it, the news came out this week jim that they actually had obtained them or they had them they probably had them all along uh so what's uh, give folks a little sense of how likely that is that uh, deutsche bank will eventually uh, turn over these uh r- returns for all of us to see
0: well i'll I'll, ask, I'll answer part of that with a question. How do you interpret getting, a, if you had a subpoena dropped on you, is that convincing or, or coercing <laughs> when when Congress drops a subpoena on you yeah. and says, give us these documents? Yeah.
1: I would say that would be in the coercion camp. Uh, um, so they
0: were legally obligated to turn that stuff over yeah. until the, the Trump organization, Trump family, I don't know, whatever. It's impossible to talk about trying to untangle uh <laughs> Shrouded legal entities yeah. and, and sham corporations, yeah. but um, they sued and said that Cong- that Congress doesn't have the right to get these documents yeah. for a variety of theories, mm-hmm. like violating the pop- the privacy rights and information about his grandchildren or his children or some other nonsense, and um, that they didn't have standing to do so in the first place. I, I can't remember all the allegations, but so that was uh, the judge. Didn't have basically said they they you don't have they were going to have to turn it over, but they filed an appeal immediately. So essentially, that did kind of like they wanted to have an injunction. The judge wasn't going to grant it, but filing the appeal meant you still had the effect of an injunction because in the meantime, Deutsche Bank and Citibank haven't turned anything over. Mm -hmm. So they certainly got their they got time out on the field.
1: They being Trump.
0: They being Trump Mm -hmm. to to preclude any immediate. Disclosure of any of this information, and so what happened this week was the appellate court wanted that information because it's now in front of the Second Circuit, which we we talked about that before. Federal court system: the circuit courts are the the first, the the middle level of the appeals. The Supreme Court sits over all the top of them. Um, Second Circuit is in New York and other states, so they asked the lawyers for City and for Deutsch. do you have this stuff? They wouldn't say it on the record in court. So they asked, they followed up and, and said, now you have an order. See, this is the other thing. Even, even Deutsche Bank, they want that subpoena because besides potentially being seen as coercive, Mm -hmm. it's also legal cover. If a court is ordering you. So a a subpoena means that it has the Congress a little bit unique here, but it has the legal force of a a body who has the power to compel me to do so is saying I have to do it. Once the legal, whatever, uh, objections to that are, are exhausted, you have to do it. So as a bank, you can say, listen, I'm being forced to turn this over, Donnie. I, not our fault. Don't blame right, us. Exactly. You can't sue us for yeah. it because the, the courts are saying that yeah. we have to turn this over. So they want that, right? And and similarly, the, the banks needed the legal cover of a judicial order saying, tell us, do right. you even have these documents or not? Because we're not going to... We're not going to go through an entire appeal for something that doesn't even exist, I think was part of the rationale of issuing that order. Citibank says they don't have any of the tax returns that are responsive to this specific subpoena. That is correct. And the information that you identified a moment ago, the revelation was Deutsche Bank is saying they do have things that are specifically responsive to the subpoenas from... It's intelligence that's asking, and it's what's is it ways and means? I'm trying uh, to remember the I, other. It's the
1: intelligence committee. Is it uh, the justice? The, the financial <laughs> services. Oh, it's fun. Okay. Uh, yeah. Financial services committee. Uh, of, of, of the House of Representatives. Let's be clear. The It's not the These Senate. These are not yeah? Senate. <laughs> <laughs> Senate being Republican control. We don't want them. The day, the day <laughs>
0: that Mitch McConnell wants to know anything. <laughs> And bring his head out of the sand.
1: (laughs) Or out of his shell. I'll I'll eat the tinfoil that was wrapped (laughs) in your sandwich. Yeah, no. uh, (laughs) uh, Very good point. Yeah, so this is the House, and this is why it was so important that the Democrats took control of the House in the 2018 elections. Well, that was
0: when... Democracy was temporarily saved, as I refer refer to it. We'll we'll find out how it
1: plays out. uh, Absolutely. I was with you that night, by the way. Remember, uh, we were at a restaurant on the north side of Chicago when the results came in in a different existence. And uh, so, yes. So, all right. So, that is the legal intrigue that uh, we're at now. We know that uh, Deutsche Bank has these documents, and we know that they will turn them over if order to do so by a judge we know that the trump people are resisting uh have uh, uh, being a uh, they're trying to keep deutsche bank from releasing those in for that information because lord knows by the way donald trump could have, has the same information he can release it anytime he wants he knows what they say he knows what they say so it's this appellate court that ultimately will make an order and if they order uh um, if they rule against Donald Trump and order a Deutsche bank to release those documents to Congress, then I presume Donald Trump and his people will uh, appeal to the Supreme court. Do you share my sense that that's the next tactic they'll do?
0: They could do that. I suspect that they would. I don't know how strong of an appeal that would be. I mean, there's two sides to anything involving the Trump administration now with, when it comes to the Supreme court, uh, Here's my general analysis for that. Either it's something that's so clear-cut under the law that they just have no chance, or if there's even a shade of possibility that you could create some kind of argument that Trump can be protected, then the fact that he has five of those justices that are more or less beholden at this point means it will be a partisan decision in his favor. So what I'm trying to say is if they can even come up with some crazy you know borderline argument i wouldn't be surprised if that's what you end up seeing saying i know something about executive privilege or whatever um and rule in his favor and say that that uh the injunction is actually allowed and that the trial court was wrong and reverses it
1: wow just think about this i mean we're really getting ahead of ourselves jim but i could see uh you you and i having a conversation let us say six months from now what would happen this is what we, just to spell it out for everybody to understand. Five Republican judges effectively. Mm-hmm. Five, that's what they are, including two nominated by Donald Trump. Nominated by Donald Okay. Trump. Will rule that Congress has no legal constitutional right to demand that the president turn over his income tax returns. That's what effectively they'll be ruling.
0: Well, there's no there's two qualifications i would offer there they would they would say it more narrowly number 1 they would say that some argument that was put forth at the trial court level was a valid basis to enjoin the subpoena response and also remember it's not trump that's being asked for these documents it's a bank so they wouldn't. It wouldn't necessarily be saying that he has no obligation to do so. They would be saying that in this situation, the house does not have the power to compel a bank to do this about a private person with whatever. But the bank, whichever not, veneer of a decision. I understand exactly what you're doing,
1: and and this is why I always say, uh, lawyers are paid to concoct reasons to do things to protect their clients it's not like any of this stuff is written in stone somewhere you know what i mean uh that's the game and yeah. I, I i talk about this a lot with the tiff lawsuits uh which i won't get into that because that's a whole other to- uh, topic i covered. would just
0: turn off my microphone and let, you, let me go let off you go. about
1: the like I wouldn't Conkling want to get in The <laughs> argument that uh, uh, the city's lawyers have devised to try to take away standing from these groups that have filed this. T- anyway, uh, enough on that one. Uh, so let's go back. But ultimately, if the banks, if Deutsche Bank is not arguing, if they're not saying we object to having to turn over these documents, right. if they're not raising some kind of claim that somehow this is an infringement on their right as a bank, mm-hmm. uh, then who the heck is Donald Trump and right. the Supreme Court to give them a right that they don't even claim? So yeah. that would be the biggest cockamamie legal argument. That would even that would even dwarf the one that the city is coming up with to try to take standing away from these politicians trying to get at the tip thing. So do you follow what I'm saying? Well, there?
0: and yes, because and it would also dwarf. I think, or I don't know, be on the on par with. Uh, the corollary story to this, which is the separate attempts to get documents under or from the Treasury Department directly, where the the law we talked about that law oh, I think yeah. four or five months ago, yeah. it says shall that they shall furnish the president's yes. tax returns, and it's specific to the president. Yeah, and Steve Mnuchin just said no, yeah. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> what a s- So yeah, they, uh, it, I don't know if it's more or less absurd than that, but that one is so clear cut, even a. In the, and I will very freely admit that lawyers find distinctions where there are none. Okay. Yeah. But when the word is shall, <laughs> yeah. 99, maybe even 100 law students would all agree with that. Yes, shall means shall. Yeah. Law professors, maybe. Even.
1: Yeah. Well, no, it depends who's paying their bill at that moment. And then they'll come up with it. Oh, that's, that's why I said
0: students. Yeah, they're, students. They're, still, they're, they're still less corrupted at that point.
1: All right. Well, this one will be a really interesting one. And uh, I have to admit, I'm very much intrigued, as are you, Jim, of how this is going to. Um, unravel, but this goes to show you how difficult the task is for the Democrats in Congress uh, with, in the face of all the resistance from Donald Trump to get at anything, because every step of the way, they're getting defied. We've talked about this so many times.
0: Well, it, it shows the bigger problem that this the federal government has going forward now, once someday this guy's gone, that so much of it was built upon... Even in the crass world of Washington, some broader commitment to sometimes eventually I got to do the right thing. There are norms that people will abide by without being forced by the compulsion of law mm-hmm. for every single little thing.
1: Yeah,
0: He's broken all those. And not in a good way. Not like, you know, somebody think, oh, he's a maverick or something. These norms were holding us back. No, they were. That was like the lubricant that allowed a government to function at least better than it is now yeah. with all its flaws, with all its warts um to the point where you know that's the bigger story over the last uh, since since January, when Democrats took over in the House, just how much staff, just how much uh, like free time they've gotten a lot of volunteer hours for the guy to support the guy who's like the main attorney on behalf of Congressional Democrats in the House of Representatives. Just how much work they have to do just to get the basics done with this administration yeah. because they have zero respect for any functionality of government.
1: Yeah, well, very well put. All right, let's. Uh, we'll be discussing that one. I know down the road, Jim. And finally, the last one, the curveball I threw at you. Uh, And this comes from a conversation, an interview I had earlier with uh, political strategist Delmarie Cobb. Uh, We were talking about uh, the, the whole issue of police brutality lawsuits and the payout that the city of Chicago has been making down through the years. And Delmarie threw something out there that I hadn't even thought about. And that was the notion that one way to deal with these enormous payouts—I think it's been like eight hundred million to a billion dollars over the last uh, couple of decades—that taxpayers of the city of Chicago paid—is to force the uh, city of Chicago to buy malpractice insurance for individual police officers, so that if there's an incident where a police officer does something that results in a judgment against the city, the insurance will pay for it. And so that the cost to the taxpayers will not be the payout of the award, it will be the premium that the city has to pay to obtain insurance. And that blew my mind. I hadn't thought of that one in a while. So what's your, you're in this business, what's your general thought about that?
0: Yeah, I, it's very interesting. I would imagine that you'd have to have some, laws would have to be changed to allow it to happen in the first place. Because right now you're talking, it's, it's a general revenue thing. It's, it's the liability of the city. But if it were possible, if it was feasible, and including the political feasibility of it, I can imagine a lot of benefits because quantifying risk as opposed to just having this blob of liability floating out there that you're always going to have to satisfy from tax revenue um, in and of itself will change behaviors. Being forced to determine and having risk adjusters trying to figure out, well, how much is, what, what is the annualized uh, amount of risk for this department with the number of interactions they have with citizens, with the number of shootings that are reported, with the number of police-involved shootings, they they would ha- they would be forced because in order to even create what those premiums are, there'd be an investigation into all these shootings. There'd be an audit of, of what's happened and how viable were these cases and how many times did they get away with something that luckily nobody sued about or information didn't get out or something like that. Um, And if you then broaden that out even further, so beyond just doing more of an evaluation in the first place, the involvement of outside risk adjusters and insurance companies, which I'm no fan of insurance companies, but (laughs) that's, that's where I get the money that I get from my clients every day is some insurance company somewhere. So like I, I get how they work and have been studying them for my entire legal career. One of the things that they would, they would have an influence on this instead of just having Um, police accountability people, political people, the city council, the mayor, and um, whatever system there is in place right now with, you know, they have a new, the the new system they have now for police-involved shootings. um, it, It would be money people who obsessively think about what How can you change behaviors to minimize that risk? They'd be coming in and saying, wait a minute, you're not doing this because this is what the New York Police Department's been doing. And this is what the LAPD has been doing. And they've been doing this different training and they have these different reporting systems. And there's requirements that you always have a second guy in the car because it reduces the number of chances where you shoot people. Because you overreact to situations, I mean, th- you'd, you'd bring in a ton of institutional knowledge from other entities because it would be inflicted upon them. Yeah. Otherwise, they'd be uninsurable, and then they have to go back to the taxpayers and say, "Well, we figured we could save fifty million dollars a year by having these, uh, you know, discernible, quantifiable premiums, but instead we can't do it because now we've been told we're so dysfunctional that we can't even we're not even insurable." And the, the last way that you would would bring this down to even an individual officer level is they could depending on how it's designed create a system where they have to contribute some of it i mean the vast majority is going to come from the department yeah. but if you are as an individual it's almost like contributing to your own health plan right you you have some wow. amount some amount of your premium is coming from you yeah you know that you have some it's it's having more skin in the game. If you know that your premiums are gonna go up because of an incident, it might affect behavior.
1: Wow, just think about that for a moment. I was immediately gonna say, No way can you force a police officer to pay any part of that premium. But then when you threw the healthcare thing at me, this is this is the this is the heart of our for profit healthcare system. They always say, I remember Mayor Rahm when he was trying to lower health care costs, he goes, Well, we're gonna we're gonna make police do like sit ups and not eat donuts and stuff like that, because that'll get a lower premium. We'll save the city money. So, you know what I mean? It was like putting it on the cops to do, to to, uh, take proactive, uh, you know, proactive measures to uh, lower their health risks. To the extent
0: that they can get away with it, insurance companies are always in favor of that (laughs) because it puts it back on you, you know? You
1: you know what? I'll tell you, this is what I will, I said this to you when I, at the start of the show before we went on the air, this is a a market-based strategy, okay, to deal with a public problem and i welcome all my republican brothers and sisters and my conservative brothers and sisters and my free market brothers and sisters uh to join in the cause they're always looking for they're always talking about free markets jim when they're looking to avoid having to pay taxes or looking to make a little more money of course so uh maybe they'll uh and
0: get rid of all those pesky regulations that are that they're we, destroying american that, business i mean right. is there any business being done in this country thanks no, to that's unbelievable but yeah huh. it Insurance and markets are based on what what they do is they drive behavior and decisions.
1: All right, so here I'm going to make a deal. We'll cut a deal right here. We'll uh, nationalize uh, healthcare insurance, and then all the people who would lose their jobs for healthcare insurance will shift them over to this new. uh, (laughs) We just solved the world's problem. Anyway, Jim Coogan. That's one you can mark it off the list. (laughs) Yeah, one. That's a very productive day today. Jim Coogan from Dwyer and Coogan. Uh, It's been a blast, uh, and uh, we'll have to bring you on for more. I think we. We'll call it the segment. Is this legal? How About that, D. Is, le- is this legal? Or how is this legal? The segment is born. Yeah, that's hot. <laughs> All right. Very much. Thank you very much, Jim. I'm Ben Jarofsky. That's the end of another Ben Jarofsky bonus show.